2 John this morning. And many of you have probably never heard anybody, maybe not, maybe I'm wrong, heard the book of 2 John or the letter of 2 John taught on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or in church. And one of the reasons that may be the case is because 2 John is so much echoing the same truths that are in 1 John. It's the same writer. He's writing with the same heart. At the end of his life, he's in his 90s. And he's writing to, in this case, a specific church. And if you look at 2 John, it's addressed. It says who it's from first, which not that long ago, we used to do that when we wrote handwritten letters. We would write who it was from, we would write who it was to, and then we would write what we had to say. But in this case, he addresses it by saying the elder. Now, the elder means older, but it also uses a root word, presbys, which is kind of the root word we get for eldership within the church, a leadership position. But in this case, he's actually writing as an older man in the faith, and he's wanting to impart to those that are younger than him some truths. And in this case, specifically, he writes to the elect lady, and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So quite the mouthful. But what he's saying is he's writing to the elect lady and her children. Now, in, in many, uh, there's conversations about what this could mean. Uh, in 1 John, we really don't know who wrote 1 John, except all of the truths seem to echo the book of John, the, the gospel according to John, and also um, Second and Third John. So it, the, the authorship is by John himself, but as he writes as the elder, surely in his 90s he has the right to call himself the elder. And he writes, there's authority that comes with those who are older than you, not just because of age, but also because of maturity. I have many people in my life that are, have eldership over me, not because they're necessarily older anymore, but because they're more mature than me. And so um, he writes as an elder to what he writes here, the elect lady and her children. Now there's a, a little bit of back and forth on what this could mean. Does it mean the elect lady, you know, the bride of Christ, the church globally, or is he writing specifically to a woman who has a house church who she's kind of a leader of? And I would submit to you, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether, whether it's written to the whole church globally or whether it's written to a local assembly or a, a home with children in it. The reality is the truths that are written in it apply to all of us. And so I kind of... I kind of err on the side of he's writing specifically to a home based on the fact that at the end of the letter, he says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you. Obviously, he can't travel to the whole world, even in that day and age, as though they could travel all over the world with ships and with uh, camels and donkeys. But the reality is um, he's writing to a specific group of people but either way, the truths apply to us as well. So he writes to this um, elect chosen lady and her children whom he loves in truth. Now, he writes to us the chosen. He writes to them the chosen, the elect. Now, if we think about the elect, we think about who we've just elected. 
Now, some of you would say, well, they're not my chosen president or they're not my chosen representative. But the reality is, however the, the electoral system works, they're the chosen. They're the ones that have been put in place of leadership, whether you like them or whether you don't. Either way, we're under their authority and God has placed them there, whether we like them or whether we don't. Read Romans 13. You'll get a little bit of a polish up on that. But that said, he says here, I write to you, elect lady and your children, whom I love in truth. And I want to emphasize that word elect or chosen because the reality is the church of God has been chosen by God to be his bride, and we've been chosen, and he even sent his son to die in our place. And so I want to turn with you to Ephesians. In chapter 1, in verse 3, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 3, and says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose, there's that word, chosen or elect, just as he chose us, do you know that God chose you if you're one of his? He picked you out. He died for the entire world, and yet how do you know if you're chosen if you respond to his free gift of salvation? That's how we know if we're part of the chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen, is what Jesus said. So he says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So when God chose you, he chose you before you took a breath. He foreknew you. He knew you before your parents even got married. He knew you before your parents were born. He knew you before the foundation of the world. Not the world itself, but before whatever he made the foundation of the world to sit upon. And it's not a turtle sitting on the back of an elephant if you're into Eastern mysticism. The foundation of the earth is the word of God. That's what Colossians teaches. But here we have, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us that we would be holy. And if you've ever heard a Christian say, don't look at me, look at Jesus, the reality is in Jesus we are to become more holy, more spotless, more without blemish. And we will not be perfected until we see him face to face but there should be this process of sanctification because if God chose you, he cleanses you. He cleans every fish that he catches. And so he says, we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he pick us? Because he chose to. Why? Because it's his will. It's not his will that any should perish, but it's his will that all should obtain everlasting life. That's why he offers it. And he says, to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So if you are accepted in the beloved, the only way you have been made accepted in the beloved 
is that he made you that way. He makes us acceptable in the beloved, and he washes us in what? His own son's blood. So, there's a lot more there, but we are elect, we are chosen by God to be set apart, to be different. And so also to all those, he says, who have known the truth. So he is not only writing to this particular group, but he's also writing to all those who have been chosen, who have known the truth. And he writes to us, those whose eyes have been opened by God. And I like this because if you think about it, Scripture teaches all the time about the elect. It speaks all the time about those who have been chosen by God. It never mentions those who have been predestined to hell. It actually says that he is not willing that any should perish. And at the same time, he gives us a free will just like he has. We were made in his image. So we have the ability to make choices. We're not robots. That's why love is possible between, between us and God. Scripture does not teach us that there are people that are predestined to go to an eternal burning pit of fire. Hell was actually made for angels, the, the ones who rebelled against God and followed Lucifer, who was an angel himself, and yet when he rebelled, his name now becomes Satan, Lucifer, luminous one, Satan against God, the opposer, the rebellious one. And so that said, uh, anybody who teaches you that there's a predestination for people to help, the Bible does not speak about that. When it talks about being chosen, it's always to encourage those who have responded to the gospel to remind them, you're his. God picked you. He chose you. And so that said, I'm off of my harangue now, and we can get back to the passage. To all those who have known the truth, and so if you turn, if you're still there, I hope I should just had you stay there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, therefore, I also, he says, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And his prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who? Jesus. God's desires that we would know him. Plato said, know thyself. Tell you what, the more you get to know yourself, the less you will know God. You'll be further from him. But if you get to know God, you'll really find out who you were made to be. And so he says there, the knowledge of Jesus. He says, my prayer is that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And so he's written this to us, and these things are all true about us, but it's all about what he has done. So he writes, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth. And if you noticed, even in his greeting, he says the word truth like a gajillion times. To the elect lady and her children whom I love, in truth, and not only I, but also the, all those who have known the truth because of the truth 
which abides in us, and the truth that will be with us. Now, the truth abides in you if you are in Christ. You have known Christ. You have responded to him. You have fellowship with God. But then there's also this truth that the truth will be with us, in us and with us. If you notice that this is a promise that Jesus actually made to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, in what we call the Great Commission, this is the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey all the things that he has commanded. And then he promises that, lo, or pay attention, I am with you even until the end of the age. So there's an example. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, the first part is the truth in us. When the truth is in us, it spills out of us. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a natural outcropping of the truth being in you as you want to share it with others and you can't help it. That's what comes out. You're a toothpaste tube with the truthful. And when it spills out on other people, they they do with it what they do, but that's what gets squeezes out. Squeezes. It's what gets squeezed. I can conjugate English verbs. But then he says, and lo, I will be with you. He says, I'm going to give you the Spirit. This is what's going to happen when the Spirit is in you. And guess what? The Spirit is going to be with you, and so am I. And so Jesus doesn't leave us hanging and say, go do my bidding, I'll be up here on my throne. He says, go do my bidding, and I will empower you to do that. I want to be with you. I want to interact with you while you do it. And so John says, know the truth. And we need to know the truth about what Christ has done for us. Otherwise, we can never do anything in his name. So John then gives them a blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Again, If grace, mercy, and peace are with us, that's because Jesus is with us. From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. So I have a lot there for you, but this is John's blessing over them. He says, grace be with you. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. That's at salvation, but that's also for daily living. We've talked about that a lot, so I'm not going to camp on it. Mercy. That's when God does not give us what we do deserve. Instead, he gave it to who? What we deserve was given to who? Jesus, the spotless lamb. He was crucified for us as our salvation. He was made as a peace offering between us and God. And so he got what we did deserve, so we don't get what we do deserve. And then peace. Now, there's a twofold promise with peace. Jesus even said this. He said, my peace I leave with you. But there's a peace with God that we're given through salvation. But then there's the peace of God spoken of, and everybody has this in their homes on some sort of plaque. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, make your request made known before God with thanksgiving so that the peace of God that passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? So, but you cannot have peace, the peace of God within you until you have peace with God. Because Romans teaches us that while we were at war with God, while we were still sinners, while we were in enmity with God, Christ died for who? 
cleaned up people? No, he died for the ungodly to get rid of the war, the middle wall of separation that separates us from God so that his presence comes into our life and we receive peace with God. No longer at war, but now because of the death of his son, we have a right relationship. But then we can then pray and be anxious for nothing because he's taking care of it all. We can have the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds until the day he returns. That's the gift. So he offers us, he prays, that we would have grace, mercy, and peace with God. And all of this is given to us through God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. For emphasis, he says, the Son of the Father. Why does he do that? Well, if you remember the context of 1 John, it's really the same as 2 John, that there was a group that had left the church and said, hey, we've got this deeper truth that Jesus wasn't actually a human being. He didn't have flesh. He wasn't weak like us. He was actually like an emanation. He was like that thing on Star Wars when they want to communicate over long distance, the hologram that all of a sudden comes up and it's like glitching in and out, which I think if they've got that kind of technology, it would be HD. It wouldn't be like analog signal where you're like, hey, we got the snow. Hey, we got kind of the station and then we got it, we got it good. And then the wind blows and the antenna moves. I really think that if we were going to get holograms, come on, that'd be clear. But, you know, that's just me. But all that said, he says to them that it's through God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Because those that left the church and were coming in teaching all these things were saying he wasn't really God, he wasn't really human, and then they got all these things confused, and then they would basically twist scripture to say that Jesus wasn't a human being. And if that was the case, then what we just celebrated at Christmas is just a big fat lie. If, if that's not what it meant, a, a baby boy will be born of a virgin. I guarantee that the virgin, Mary, is not sitting there going, hey, uh, yeah, you're right, it never happened. I didn't experience any of the travail of childbirth. No, she'd be like, what is wrong with you people? I was screaming that night, that hurt. I didn't have no epidural, you know. I didn't have no hospital room. I didn't even have a warm place. But that said, he, he basically is teaching them like God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, that this thing that we've taught you is still true, even though there are people basically saying that's not true. So he goes on to, to say this, and, and, and why is this important? Because if Jesus wasn't a human being, and he took on the sins of the world, and he suffered, but it really wasn't suffering because he just really was a spirit emanation, then he didn't really die in our place, and his blood didn't actually spill, and therefore we don't have any cleansing of our sin. We have a vain hope. If he, he didn't spill his blood, we don't have a sacrifice. If he didn't live a sinless life, if he wasn't tempted in all ways as we are, then, then the salvation we celebrate is just... It's a joke, and we may as well just shut the lights off, sell the building, and move on with life, do something that matters. So here we are, he says in verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. A spirit emanation can't be with us. A human being can be with us. And so verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly, and he's writing to this woman and her children, that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, 
not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So this is an echo. It's really the same thing that he was saying in 1 John. But he says, you have reason to rejoice. I want to start there because the reason that he said you have to rejoice, he said, I've found that some of your children are walking in truth still. Now, for those of you that are parents, if you've tried to teach your children about Jesus and they later on in life continue walking in the faith, there is something so fulfilling and encouraging in that. But for those parents that I've spoken with that have children that have departed from the faith, there is no greater sorrow. And I will tell you that as a pastor, when I invest my life and have moved my family and have done the things that God's called me to do, and I spend time waking hours praying or investing in people, and they continue walking in the faith, it makes it all worth it. It makes it this joyous offering. But when there are those that you've poured your lifeblood into, and resources, and energy, and you don't do it because people will always react the right way, but still, when your children, when anybody that you consider a child in the faith departs, though they've been given so much light, there's no deeper valley that you can go through and go, ah, they're missing it. They're, they're giving up on the one thing that's going to matter eternally. And it's, it's disappointing. It can be depressing. Uh, it's heavy. But John says some of your children are walking in the truth. And so I think John, at his old age, rather than getting all upset about the things that aren't happening that he has a desire to see happen, He's getting used to celebrating the things that are going good. And I don't know about you guys, but I have this tendency to take the 1% of things that are going bad and make them seem like the 100%. And in the meantime, the 99% of the things that really are going pretty stinking good, I, I don't take the time to celebrate. And so I think that's one way we can actually increase our joys by celebrating the good stuff, celebrating the victories, celebrating the things that we thought weren't possible in the last season, that God has said, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And so he says, some of your children are walking in truth. That's an amazing thing. And Jesus, I want to point out, taught multitudes of people. In one sitting, he fed 5,000 people, which we know to be 5,000 men that they counted. There were actually possibly up to 15,000 or more that they fed. And yet at the end of his life, who was still around? Who was still walking in truth? Not 12 even. 11. 11 people. This is the Son of God. This is the man who had more authority given to him by God the Father than anyone and he had 11 continuing in the faith, and some of them were struggling. And so if you are trying to lead other people to Jesus, including your family members, hopefully more than just your family members, and some of them are continuing to walk in the truth, celebrate it. Enjoy it. Do everything you can to just bank on it and say, Lord, thank you. You are so good. Because at the end of the day, that's what God does. Jesus will never be popular until he returns. And then when he's popular, guess what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to glory of God the Father. Some of them willingly. Hopefully you and I will be among the willing. 
but there will be many that will confess the same thing, but it will be because they are under the fist of mighty God and recognizing him for who he is, but it's too late for them. And so um, walking in truth is not popular and it will not ever be. I pray all the time, Lord, would you make Jesus famous in this valley? And I think that he can do that. He can do anything. But I think at the same time, it may not look like what I'm praying for. Like I want people to have a parade rather than for Santa. I want to have a Jesus parade. But I don't think that's going to happen like it would for Santa because we're just in a different day and age. But the reality is it's never happened. This, the one parade I know about that they had for Jesus was in the New Testament. And a week later, guess what they did to that parade volunteer? They murdered him. And while the parade was happening, there were many people saying, could you shut your people up? Could you stop them from calling you God? They're blaspheming. And Jesus said, if I made them be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. And yet the same crowd that was lauding him and celebrating him a week later, you know what they were chanting? Crucify that guy. Kill him. Drain the blood from his body. That's pretty wicked. And so uh, John's plea to this church is love one another. Now, this is not a new theme with him, but how can we walk in the commandments? He says, if you love me, walk in my commandments, Jesus said, and, and John pleads, he says, I plead with you, lady, not as though I write a new commandment, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. What's it look like to walk in the truth? It's, it's an overarching generality to say, well, you should be walking in truth, brother. But let's get more specific. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I should have just got, got you guys some bookmarks. You just put them there. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul with this same fatherly heart for the Ephesian church, writes, Therefore, now there's a bunch before that, but he says, Be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walk in obedience to the Lord, he says. Verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. We're going to talk about deception here in a minute. But he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And then he says this to give them perspective. For you, you know, it's easy to look at this list and go, yeah, I know so-and-so needs to stop that. Or I know so-and-so needs to do that. But then Paul gives them perspective and he says, you were once darkness. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Light exposes what's in the darkness. Our lives, whether we want them to or not, are going to make other people uncomfortable because light exposes the works of darkness. Don't apologize for that. If someone comes to you and says, well, I know, I shouldn't say that because you're here. Recognize that they probably did that around Jesus. They're recognizing that you're different. Let that be what it is. Let them be convicted. Perhaps they will be driven to the same Savior that has changed you. You were once darkness, and someone walking in the light exposed you for what you were, and because of that, you're forever changed. And at the time, it might have aggravated you, but perhaps now you're in a spot where you're like, man, I'm so thankful they made me uncomfortable. I'm so thankful that Jesus changed them so much that they became a witness in my life. So that's, um, that said, John's pleading with them, love one another, walk in the commandments. And then in verse 7, my clicker's not working, Steve-O. Verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver. So someone who does not confess that Jesus Christ specifically is coming in the flesh, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, there's a lot of talk about the word antichrist, but this is someone that has put himself in the place of Christ or is pointing to you, you to someone that has. So someone that confesses that he has not come in the flesh is actually someone that is professing a faith that is instead of or against Christ. He says they do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. What's interesting about the way he says it in this letter is it implies that the word has come and will come. They're, they're professing that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They're also professing that he will not come in the flesh for a physical kingdom it's kind of interesting because there are different views on the end times and how it will look but this implies that jesus will come in a physical kingdom set it up and rule and reign but that said he's talking about these deceivers they profess to know god but deny him by their lifestyle which is not a new thing in the new testament if you look at titus one of the letters that paul wrote to one of his disciples titus was there and he writes to Titus, who is a young pastor, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, there are many who are insubordinate. These are leaders or those that make themselves to be leaders in the church who are unsubordinate. They are idle talkers and deceivers, especially those who are of the circumcision. They were very religious, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of what? Dishonest gain. They were, they were, it was, must be the money. They were in it for the money. And so he gets into the specifics there in Titus, but in this case, these, okay, so they're teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. So what does that imply? That implies that they're, they're telling anything of the flesh is material and evil. But that which is spiritual is totally different from the physical. So what I do in the flesh really doesn't impact my spiritual well-being. But what Jesus taught is that 
out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the spiritual actually impacts the way that the physical is lived out. You can't compartmentalize in this, say, this is my spiritual life. This is my physical life. What I do here doesn't matter. What I do here does. Because what that makes you do is start to live for the flesh. And when you live for the flesh, you start neglecting the spiritual and you stop repenting of sin because it doesn't really matter. It was just done in the flesh. So hopefully all this makes sense. When we make all of our impact on how we live in the flesh, then what happened in Ephesians when he wrote about those who are fornicators and covetous and living for these physical pleasures, what we find out is he says, these that practice these things will not be partakers of the kingdom of God. When they see Jesus face to face and have lived their life towards the flesh, what Jesus will say to them is, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. They're proving what they actually are on the inside by the way that they live. And so John's writing to point this out, and he says those who deny that he was in the flesh and live that way, like that, that's what they believe, um, these are antichrists, these are false teachers, watch out for what they say. But why do we need to live as if Jesus is going to return? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Why is the imminent return of Christ an important doctrine or teaching in the New Testament church? Matthew chapter 24. Beginning in verse 36. Many of you will know this verse that we begin with. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He's talking about his return, when that will take place. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, there are those that say that uh, when Noah's flood was actually kind of an allegory in the, New T- in the Old Testament. But Jesus taught as if it was something that physically took place. And so I believe that it physically took place. And so the ark was necessary because the whole world was flooded. But in verse 39, they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. He says, Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He didn't tell us a day. He didn't tell us a time. Why do you think he did that? Well, when I was growing up, my dad wouldn't tell me when he was going to return, and then he would give me a list of chores. Say, hey, at the end of the day, I'll be home. Here's your chores. Now, some days he came home early, some days he came home late. But the reality was, I wanted to have the chores done before he got home because they were way more fun when dad wasn't watching than when they when he was watching so i would get them done and in the meantime in first john chapter 3 
verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Then this is the verse I want you to focus on. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So preparing for His return is just like preparing for the return of of a husbandman. And if you know anything about Jewish weddings, they would pay the dowry and they would say, hey, I want to marry you. And they would be engaged. They would be betrothed as we talked about Mary and Joseph. And the return of the, 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 he would go off and he would prepare a place. And he would prepare a place for them to live. Now, we wouldn't necessarily like it because it was kind of like the Barones. But instead of being across the street, they would build a house onto the in-laws which I don't know, some of you might like that and some of you might not. But that said, he would build a building on top of, you know, kind of a lean-to or whatever, and then when it was done, you didn't know when he would be done building it. He could be a good craftsman, he might be a crummy one. But he would come back, as soon as it was, it was done, he would say, okay, our house is ready. And when he would return, the bride better be ready because there's going to be a seven-day feast. So the preparation better be done because here comes... Not the bride, here comes the husband. And we, as the bride of Christ, have hope that he, when we see him, we will be like him. So in the meantime, as he prepares for his return, what did Jesus say? I'm going off to prepare a place. And when I return for you, be ready. Be about my business. And so as he returns, we have this opportunity to be ready. Therefore, he says in verse 8 of Second John, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Serve your father in, in, when no one's watching, is what Jesus said. And if you serve your father faithfully when no one's watching, you'll be rewarded openly. And so in Second uh, John verse 8 and 9, I looked up the uh, verse 8 and 9 in the message version. He says this, Be very careful around these false teachers, them, so you don't lose out on what we've worked so diligently in together. I want you to get every reward you have coming to you. Anyone who gets so progressive in their thinking that he walks out on the teaching of Christ walks out on God. But whoever stays with the teaching stays faithful to both the Father and the Son. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, the point is, he's saying, don't get robbed believing these things that these guys are teaching. You will get robbed if you follow what they're teaching, and you'll end up not just departing slightly from the faith. You'll deny Christ and his lordship in your life. So as we finish, he says, verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, don't receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now maybe you're home on a Saturday morning. Apparently they go out to all the roads around here, the J-dubs, show up at your house, 
And they will say, oh, we believe in Jesus just like you do. But they are modern day teachers of this whole false teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he actually wasn't the son of God. He was a really good teacher, though. But the reality is he taught that he was the son of God. So if he's a really good teacher in their eyes, they think that good teachers are liars and, and they're following a false doctrine, a lie. So don't be robbed of that. Don't even receive them into your house nor greet them. Don't bid them, God bless you. We do not want God to bless their venture. They are deceiving folks and they are deceived. You can say, God, open your eyes, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18. I think that's a good blessing for them. May God give you insight to see the truth and no longer be deceived. But that said, he, he continues and he says, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. But don't focus so much on that. Focus on verse 8. Look to yourselves. Pay attention to your own lives. Make sure that you're walking in the faith. But then as John closes, he longs for fellowship with these folks. He says, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face with you that our joy may be full. He wants fellowship. And if there's one thing I could encourage you as we close this letter, though it be a short letter, here we are at the end of the year. And John longs for not just his own joy to be full, but for, he says, our joy to be full. And if you want mutual encouragement as you celebrate the end of the year, I want you to consider this. John preferred face-to-face -face communication. It's about to be 2020. We think we see things 2020, and clearly. We've moved on from pen and paper. We've moved on from actually going to people's houses. We want it to be just clean enough, right? But the reality is, John, an apostle, an elder in the faith, he could have written as long of a letter as he wanted. And what he said is, I, rather than writing pen and ink and paper, I would rather come to you and speak face to face with you. Now we can text each other at any point, right? We have that ability and I love it because if you're thinking of somebody and you're praying for them, you can just real quick say, hey, I'm praying for you right now. And they get it and they can receive encouragement from that. But John desired fellowship with people who had Jesus as their common bond for mutual encouragement. He desired it perhaps to break bread together, to share stories of God's faithfulness, to bear burdens with folks who understood how hard it is to walk by faith. But all of this was so that our joy may be full. So I want to submit a challenge to you as we get ready to celebrate the new year. I would challenge you on New Year's Eve to get together with other Christians and, and non-believers alike, but to share, recount God's faithfulness. Rejoice that some of your children are walking in truth. Perhaps you can rejoice that all of them are. Maybe you can rejoice that you are and you're hoping for your children to walk in truth. Um, but spend New Year's Eve recounting God's faithfulness with other, other believers. I promise that it will be a joy-filled evening. Even if you're one of those, it's like, it's 10 o'clock, I'm done. Reeling it in. I don't blame you. I'm usually that way now. But, but I would encourage you, and I would encourage you if you want to have a joy-filled 2020 regularly, not just on Sunday mornings, get together with another Christian, drink coffee, eat food, whatever, and tell the story of what God has been doing. It will be a joy-filled year. 
it will be an encouraging year. It will get you through the doldrums. Here we are. Here comes January, February. We think winter's over, and it's just about to start, baby. Don't let that rob you of joy. And don't let that keep you from enjoying one another. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Apostle John. We thank you for his message to younger believers and to this lady who had children in the faith. We thank you for his strong exhortation to love one another and to keep the commandments and to not believe those who would deceive. Father, help us to know you well enough to know the difference between a deceiver and those who actually follow Jesus. And help us to be those in other people's lives who actually follow Jesus. Not to show ourselves to be great, to magnify your personality and your character in our community. So Father, as we close this letter, I thank you for John's heart. Not just to write to people. Many of us have written cards, and many of us have sent out pictures, and many of us have celebrated Christmas together. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed, but to take the opportunity while we have it to sit down with people we haven't connected with in a while and to share about your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.